So as we start today, let me ask you a question from that song that we just sang. Do you see the evidence of God's goodness in your life? Audible, you can answer this question. Do you see the evidence of God's goodness in your life? Because here's the thing. That's, the answer to that is a matter of where you're looking. The answer to that all depends on where you're looking. I'm going to commit, I, I, I'm going to admit, confess something to you up front today. I did something stupid this past week. Now, that doesn't narrow it down, some of you are saying, but um, I did one particular stupid thing this week that I want to share with you. I was driving to work one morning this week, getting close to church on Nineveh Road, and I noticed, as I often do if I'm paying attention, several potholes on the road that I usually try to avoid, very close to church. There was one in particular that morning that looked like it might jar me in the teeth if I hit it. And so in that split second, I decided not to veer left because you're kind of coming close to the curve there. And so I don't want to come into oncoming traffic. So instead, I veer to the right. And that's when it happened. Bam! I hit a mailbox. <laughs> now, don't worry. The mailbox is fine. I could see no visible damage to the mailbox. But I have, because, because I have the, that kind of new side view mirror, you know, that kind of folds in and gives to impact. So what happened was the mailbox stood, st stood still while my mirror banged into the side of my car. Sounding much like what I would think if I was under attack and my car had been exploded by, you know, some sort of bomb. I mean, my heart, I thought someone... I don't know what I thought had happened, but it was a bad reaction in that moment. Uh, I realized afterwards, I, I, you know, I've kind of pulled, I'm embarrassed, I'm, I'm just, you know, my, my heart's racing, I feel like a, like a stupid idiot for, you know, that happening. All to realize, really it didn't do much damage, it cracked, it broke the glass in the mirror itself. No damage to the side uh, window, which it had crashed into as it folded in. No, no damage that I could see to the mailbox. But all week long, guess what my problem is now? I can't see out the, the side of my car. When it comes to looking that direction, and how many times do you, out of habit, look over there and think, what am I seeing? What's coming? And guess what? My vision on that side is impaired. All because I was looking in the wrong place. You see, it wasn't just because I wasn't paying attention while driving. It was because I was paying attention to the wrong thing. I was paying great and careful attention to the potholes on the road. And that's what caused me to take my eyes off of where my car should have been in the first place. Last week, Terry started the new year with a message about perspective. You see, perspective is all about how your eyes see the world and the circumstances around you. Are you viewing them, are you viewing your life, your circumstances, through the lens of the world and your own sinful nature? 
Or are you viewing them through the lens of Scripture? Through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ. You see, that, that song we just sang, that will determine whether or not your perspective will determine whether or not you see the evidence of God's goodness around you. That will determine whether or not you're seeing the Word of God fulfilled in your life or whether you're seeing just turmoil and chaos. It all depends on your perspective. But sometimes we have another problem altogether. Sometimes we have another problem that affects our vision. Even in the church. Often in the church. Because sometimes we might be looking with the proper perspective, but we spend too much time looking at the wrong things. We spend too much time looking at the things that aren't the most important. And, and, and there are so many times, if you look at Scripture, as we're going to do today, there are so many times throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, where in, in the life of Israel, God's chosen people, where they had turned away, turned their eyes from God, from the things that were most important, and focused on other non-important things. Today, as we uh, turn to the Old Testament, if you got your Bibles, as we turn to the Old Testament book of Micah, that's what we're going to see. We're going to look at one of those instances where Israel has turned away because Israel is looking at the wrong things. So today we're going to be in Micah chapter 6 as we look at the Old Testament part of our message today. About halfway through, we're going to look at the New Testament. It's something that Jesus says along these same lines. So as we start today, let's read from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Micah says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of the, my body for the sin of my soul? Then look at verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 
If you take a look at the notes in your bulletin today, we're going to get started by, by basically breaking down what hap- what's happening in Micah chapter 6. If you're following along with your fill in the blanks, this is where we get started. We're, we're basically looking at what, what's happening in the context of Micah chapter 6. Here's where it starts. In Micah chapter 6, God is accusing Israel. In Micah chapter 6, God accuses Israel. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. Listen to the language that God uses when he brings this charge against Israel. It says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. He's talking to Micah. Stand up, Micah, and do what? Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains the Lord's accusation. Listen, you ever, everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Then God says, and basically in the, in the start of his defense, he, he basically takes the defensive and says, what have I done to you, my people? How have I burdened you? Answer me. You see, God is addressing the, the charges that they've been uh, complaining against God. But the truth is, in Micah chapter 6, it is God who is doing the accusing. These are not playful words from God in Micah chapter 6. He is charging Israel. He is accusing his own people. This passage reads like a courtroom scene where God files a lawsuit against his own people. In fact, when I was reading the HCSB, the Home and Christian Standard Bible this week, it uses the word lawsuit in Micah chapter 6. It's basically a picture of God filing charges against the people of Israel. Really, that's a a big part of what the book of Micah is. Look this time at, at, um, at Micah 1 verses 1 through 7, and we'll see what has happened here. The next line in your notes is this, the people of Israel had turned from God. Israel had turned from God. Look at Micah 1, 1 through 7. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, Hear, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you. That's more courtroom talk here. The Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He, He comes down and treads the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like fire rushing down a slope. Look at verse 5. All of this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression, Micah says? is Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones in the valley and lay bare her foundations. All of her idols I will break to pieces. All of her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all of her images. 
Since she gathered gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. So what's happening in Micah chapter 6? What is it that has got God so upset against his very own people? Israel had turned away, pure and simple, from the laws and the standards of God. Think about this as a, as a nation. Israel was a nation. The, the nation of Israel as a whole was falling away from, from the laws and the standards of their God. They had decided to live instead in the world, among the sins of the world, among the people of the world, among the ideologies of the world, and, and, and they began to look like the world. Still all the while, clinging to their identity as the people of God and hoping to benefit from the promises of belonging to God. Church, you think this is happening today? Do you think that America, you think that the church in America is in danger of falling down this path? That's the next line. Israel was in danger of forgetting. Israel was in danger of forgetting. Look at what God says in Micah chapter 6, this time verses 4 and 5. God says, I brought you up out of Egypt and I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, he says, remember when Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. He says, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What is God reminding them of here? God's basically reminding them of what he's done from the days of their slavery in Egypt till now. That Shittim to Gilgal, uh, Shittim is where they came into the promised land at the Jordan River. Some versions will say Acacia Grove, but still, that's where they crossed in to, to the Jordan, crossed into Canaan. Gilgal is where the, the book of Joshua ends. So basically, God is saying, remember all the things I've done. Since Moses led you out of Egypt, since, since those people governed you in the desert, and then since I actually brought you in to Canaan, remember the things that I've done. Why? Because Israel was in a real danger of forgetting God. And church... I look around today, and I look around not just the world. I certainly look around the world, but, but, but I look at the church today, and I think we are in danger of forgetting. And today, this, this rebuke that we find in Micah chapter 6, today, church, I don't think this is just big church. I think it is. I think this is the big, broad church, but church, I think this is here and so today we don't just talk about the church metaphorically and the church in danger. This is us. This is me. And I think if we don't keep our eyes on the right things, I think we'll all be in danger of forgetting. Because that's a pattern that is presented through all of Scripture. Look at the next line. It says, God is not, was not pleased with their offerings. 
This is interesting. Look at what he's saying in Micah 6, verses 6 and 7. This is, this is still God speaking through Micah, but Micah kind of takes the, 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 the con here of approaching God. Look at what he says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah is saying, but so then how do I come before God? If, if we're doing the wrong things, then how do I approach God? And, and God is saying it's not through your offerings. And really, that's interesting to me. From, a new, from an Old Testament perspective, that's interesting because before Jesus came on the scene, how had God established, through what system had God established that the people would come to him? Through a system of sacrifices and offerings. That that's how they would receive atonement. That that's how they would be cleansed of their sin. But God says that's not going to do it. Look at, at what Hosea, this is kind of a parallel idea here. In the book of Hosea, another Old Testament prophet, another prophet preaching about the destruction of Israel, about the sin of Israel. Look at what is said in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is the words of the Lord. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And what else? An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, God says that you can't just come before me with these acts of penance. You can't just come before me with these rituals and, and, and these sacrifices because what God is not getting is that his people are not acknowledging him. He says, that's what I want more than your, your spiritual acts of worship. That's what I, I want more than, than what your hands are doing and the offerings that you're bringing to me. He said, I, I want you that you would acknowledge me. What's more important is that you would know me. So we see in Micah chapter 6 that God is not pleased with Israel. In fact, God is accusing Israel, his own people, of sin. Israel was forgetting what God had done. Israel was living in the sins of the people around them. They had abandoned God and his ways. And all the while, they tried to continue to offer sacrifices to God. All the while, they tried to bring him offerings, thinking that they could somehow earn his favor, while the truth is that their hearts were far away from him. I think you and I fall into that trap sometimes. That we think as long as we come to church, and you know what, us here today, we're the real churchgoers, right? Because we're not doing this virtual stuff, we're in the building. As long as we go to church, as long as we're in the building every so often, as long as we're doing the right things and singing the right songs and saying the right words, and God's looking at Israel and saying, but your hearts are far from me. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your hearts. And sometimes we're missing it, church. And so finally, God addresses the real issue. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 is really where we're going to spend the rest of the time 
today as far as this Old Testament side of this issue. Micah 6 verse 8 sums this up for them, for Israel then, and for us today. What the problem was between God and his people. Look at it. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The, the, the next line in your notes is, God has shown Israel what is good. You see, this is the thing, and I talked with somebody after church this morning who, who, who heard the sermon, needed the reminder as much as I do, and they said, I've always loved this verse. Because that one little line says that when all these things are going on, all these things in the world are happening, that one little reminder, that one little line says, God's already shown me what is good. When a new circumstance and a new tragedy and a new whatever happens, I don't have to go look for new answers. God's already given me the answers. The question is, do I have eyes that are looking for those answers? Or am I looking at potholes instead of what I'm supposed to be looking at? God has shown you, church, what is good. It's right here. God has shown you, church, what is good. It's in his son, Jesus Christ, who he sent to give you life. Don't forget when the storms swirl around. Don't forget when another news story knocks you off your foundation. Don't forget that God's already shown us what is good. God's already given us his word. And then he asks the next question. It's in your bulletin as well. It's in your notes. So what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of his church? And I want you to think about this before we move on to our New Testament part. I want you to think about this question. Because you and I, as the church of God, in a tumultuous season. And I don't know. I'm no, I'm no predictor of future events. I don't know what, where this past year, what's, if next year's better or not. But I know there's a lot of stuff swirling around us. And, and uh, this year we watched, I told first service, we watched the uh, Dick Clark rocking New Year's, I don't know all the words. You know what I'm talking about, the show where they're ringing, they're dropping the ball, all that stuff. I never really cared much about the New Year's celebration. Amy always liked it, always watched it. So last couple of years I've kind of read or something while she has it on. And, and I kind of was just half listening, but I kept hearing the same things. Every person, every celebrity, every person I didn't know that was being interviewed, they said the same thing. Well, we sure had one heck of a year this year, didn't we? This year wasn't, certainly wasn't what we were expecting. And then yet every person then, as down as they were on 2020, you know what they said about 2021? This is going to be our year. We just know this is going to be our year. This is going to be the year where things are going to turn around. It, it, it was all dread looking at the past and optimism looking at the future. You know what the truth is? We don't know what's coming. We don't know that, that it, by 2022, 2020 might have looked like a piece of cake. I, I don't know. But here's the truth. We're, we're looking at all these 
things swirling around us and, 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 and we're looking sometimes at the wrong things. We're looking at the wrong things when what we should be saying is, okay, if I'm, if I'm not living among the world, if I'm a child of God, if I'm a follower of Jesus, then what should my response be? Not to my circumstance, but to my God. What should my, circumst- what should my response be in all circumstances? And so that's what we're going to answer today. What does God require of the church? When, when the political world has gone mad, when, when injustices and fights and, and all this abound, what does God desire, what does God require of his people? I want you to hold on to that question as we move into the New Testament side of our message today. If you've got your Bibles, turn this time to Matthew chapter 23. It's, it's the idea that we will get where we're going with these two stories, and, and you'll see where they connect in just a moment. In Matthew 23, we find Jesus confronting similar problems among Israel's leaders. Let's take a look. This is at uh, Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help move them. Everything they do is for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and tassels of their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets. And the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. If you go back this week and read Matthew 23, because we're only going to look at a part of it today. If you go back and, and read it, you would see that Jesus is basically spending the whole chapter chewing out the Pharisees for their sin and their deception. And here's the crazy thing. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were the, the leaders uh, religiously of the Hebrew people. And yet their lives and actions had become detestable in the sight of God. And Jesus brings charges against them in Matthew chapter 23, much like Micah much like God through the prophet Micah is bringing charges against the people of Israel in Micah chapter 6. Again, we're not going to read the whole story of Matthew 23, the whole chapter today, but I do want to look at what I think is the heart behind Jesus' accusation against the Pharisees. And as we do, we're going to see some familiar words. Look at Matthew 23, this time verses 23 and 24. This is again Jesus speaking out against the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the most important matters, the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. 
And then he says, verse 24, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. I don't know what it is about this, this phrase, but that has always tickled me. I don't know what it is, and that's really something that, that I didn't understand it for a long time, but every time somebody would read that camel and that line, I just thought that was just a funny way of putting it here. And that's what we're going to talk about today, gnats and camels. And that's the next line in your notes as well. Here's the bottom line. Israel had become more worried about gnats than camels. Israel had been more worried about gnats than camels. Look at verse 24 again, one more time. Let's get this, let's let this sink in today. You blind gods, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. See, it's an interesting phrase, but it, it, it's basically, it, it's pretty easy to understand. The Pharisees were being called to account by Jesus because they had let so many tiny little gnat issues become the top priority in their faith with God. That for them, it had, come, it had become about all these tiny, small, little religious details. Jesus says, you're not just tithing your money. You're tithing your dill and your mint and your cumin. You're tithing everything. And yet again, just like Micah, Jesus accuses them because their hearts are far from him. On the surface, they're doing everything right. Everything they're doing is about appearances and about whether or not they look like the people of God. And Jesus says, inside it's full of, it's full of dead. Inside it's, it, it's full of death and decay. Because your hearts are far from me. The Pharisees, and here's the thing, the Pharisees had become engulfed with matters that didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Not compared to the things they were missing. And again today, church, I want to make this clear. A lot of times when we say there's a problem in the church, we all think, yep, everybody else in the church has got a big problem. The truth is, this is here. This is in my house. There's just as much a tendency for this to be in my house as, as anything. This is, this is a human tendency that we all must deal with. Because there's a lot of people in the church that are straining at gnats. There are a lot of people in the church that are worried about these pesky little things that are just, they, they seem to, to, to clog our vision. They seem to, to fill our days and our conversation. And sometimes I think when I sit around and hear the discussion of the church, what's most important, the gnats or the camels? Because what did we spend more time in 2020 talking about? Gnats or camels? And you know what? Today, I don't have to qualify what those camels are. I will say this, or what those gnats are, sorry. Today, I do not have to tell you what the gnats are. I will say this, 2020 was a year for gnats. And yet Jesus accuses 2,000 years ago, the Pharisees is the same thing. Because, because this is not the first time man has struggled with this issue. 
of focusing so hard on unimportant matters. And again, you know what they are. I don't have to tell you what they are. So today, we're going to look at the other issues. Today, we're going to look at the most important issues. If you go back, um, if you look at, at Matthew 23, you're going to see this issue uh, of the gnats and the camels. Look again at, at Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But here's where, here's where it gets real. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. So we're asking the question, it's in your notes, what are the camels? Because I don't desire to sit and talk about gnats with you. I don't desire today to sit and talk for 20 more minutes about what the issues are that are swarming around us that are unimportant because we're already spending too much time on those. We're already giving too much time and energy and effort on those things. Today, let's talk about the camels. If there are things that we're missing that are most important, and today let's talk about those things instead of all these pesky things that are flying around us. So today that's what we're going to look at as we um, focus on these two passages. But here's what I find interesting. And we're going to spend the rest of our time today on this idea. Here's where the connection was for me. The camels that Jesus refers to in Matthew 23. Justice mercy, and righteousness. Or, I'm sorry, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These three camels, these three more important matters of the law that the Pharisees had neglected in Matthew chapter 23 are just about word for word the same issues that Micah brings up in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. When Micah says, what then Israel does the Lord require of you? These three camels from Matthew 23 and the requirements of Micah chapter 6 are just about an identical list. Look at Micah 6 verse 8 again. Look at how he puts it. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So today, in the time that we have left, we're going to look at the camels. Church, I don't want to spend another day focusing too much on the gnats. Let's look at what's important. So I've actually made you some slides. Let's look at camel number one. It's like, what's behind camel number one? Here we go. Uh, I made you some slides so that you could actually see it and remember it in your head as a camel. Okay, the first word, and we're looking uh, at both these passages, Okay. We're looking at Micah chapter 6, that's Hebrew. We're looking at Matthew chapter 23, that's Greek, okay? They're two, two different languages, which is why the words are not identical. But at the same time, if you compare words, if you compare what they mean, I think Micah and Jesus are saying the same thing. So let's look at these two. The first camel is this. Jesus lists them as justice, mercy, mercy. And faithfulness. So camel number one is justice. The Hebrew word that's used in Micah 6, 8 is mishpat. Okay? I do not speak Hebrew, so if, if you do, I apologize today. Um, 
this is justice. This is the word that, is, that we take as justice. But it's also literally the word for judgment and the word for ordinance. Now, this is used 422 times in the Old Testament. This is what I mean when I say these are camels. Because anything that is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible, any word that is, is listed that often in the Word of God is something that we would say is foundational to the Word of God. These are principles that are deep within the heart of God's Word. And the first one is justice. The first one is justice. Now, in, in Greek, the word is different. Again, two different languages, Old Testament, New Testament. The Greek word is krisis. It's where we get, guess what? Crisis, all right. Uh, justice, it, it is literally the word for justice. And again, judgment and, and ruling and court. It was a very legal kind of term, just like Micah is using in, in chapter 6, verse 8. It's a very legal term for things being right or wrong, for ruling on issues that were one way or the other. Let's look at just a couple of of examples. We're going to try to look at a couple examples throughout Scripture where these camel words are used to give you an idea of, of what they're talking about here. So look at, at Psalms 146 verses 7 through 9. This is the Hebrew. This is um, the, the Hebrew form there for justice. It says, he gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. This is talking about God. That word justice there is the same word as what Micah 6, 8 uses when he says justice. It's that same mishpat there. He says, the Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and the widows, but frustrates the plans of the wicked. Maybe this isn't what you think of when you think of justice. Let's look at another example. Zechariah 7 verses 8 and 10. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. That's mishpat. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Verse 10 says, and so how do you do that? Verse 10 says, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. You see, when, when it's the same for the first two camels. When justice and mercy are used in Scripture, most often they are words that do not apply to us. They apply to others. Most often, justice and mercy are words that are applying to other people. Look at 2 Thessalonians. This time, we're going to look at the Greek word. This time, we're going to look at, at uh, krisis, the idea of justice. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 7 says, All this is evidence of God's judgment, evidence that God's judgment is right. That word judgment there, it's the same word. That's your crisis. That's your word that Jesus uses for justice. That God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. What does that mean? He will pay back trouble to those of you. Oh, I'm sorry. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Think about justice and think about today. Church, think about the things you've seen in the last year on the news. Think about the things you've heard in the last week, the things that have happened in our nation, the things that have happened even in our county. Even Think about the world and the state of the world this year. Now tell me this, and, and we can even show of hands. How many of you long for a day when the justice of God will prevail? And here's the truth. In the meantime, what his people are to be doing is showing that justice to others. Because the justice that we try to fabricate now is never going to fix what's going on. There is one who is just. There is one who is right. And so justice being carried out is not what you and I would think justice is. Justice is the standards of the Almighty God. Camel number two is mercy. Show the camel number two slide there. It's the same camel. I'll just put different words on it. Camel number two, mercy. The Hebrew word here is, has got one of those CH sounds, the letters that makes you spit, right? Chesed is what the word is. I'm just going to say chesed like it's an H. Uh, it basically translates to kindness, goodness, and a word that we don't really use today, which is loving kindness, it's again, this is a camel word. This is an all over the word of God word. It's 248 times in the Old Testament. The Greek word is eleos, and that means the same thing. It means mercy, compassion, goodwill. What's interesting to me is that in the Micah passage and in the Matthew passage, those words as they're translated today are word for word the same. Justice and mercy. Those two those two issues, those two concepts are the same. And so it's clear that these issues, when it comes to the Word of God, these are the foundational issues. Camel number two. Let's take a look at, at a couple of instances where it's used in Scripture. This time start with, um, start with the Greek, start with the New Testament. James chapter 2 verses 12 through 13 says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Why? Because judgment without mercy, and that's the same word, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Why? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, we, we really want to do judgment, right? We really want to look at the world and do justice and do judgment and worry about what's right and what's wrong and, and whether or not you believe what I believe. But mercy is just as important. Mercy is just as important. Look at what Psalms 36 says in verse 7. And this again, this is the Hebrew word for mercy. This is the Hesed word for mercy. How priceless is your unfailing love, O oh God. That phrase, unfailing love, that's the same word. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Now, to show you what I mean, look at the King James Version. I don't do this much very often, but this is that word I was telling you about. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O oh God. 
Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. We don't use that word very often, but I think that's one case where that original word is a little more clear. Because you see, sometimes in the church, we think, yep, mercy is supposed to be a tenant of our faith. Mercy is supposed to be a a rock hard issue of, of, of faithfulness. But sometimes we quibble about what is mercy. Sometimes we argue about, yeah, but what does it really mean to show mercy? You know, can I show somebody mercy and they still hate their guts, for example? When you see a word that's as honest and open as loving kindness, then you, you start to see what it means here. See, these words are not the things that you and I are best at. These are the principles of God. How many of you in your life need the mercy of God? And when you look at the world around you, and you look at all of the the hate and all of the the arguing and all of the things that are going around in our world, how many of you long for a day where the mercy of God will prevail? Then that means today, church, that we are to be showing the mercy of God. That we are to be showing the justice of God. Because, yes, there is coming a day when God will come with justice and mercy. But guess what? What's supposed to happen in the meantime? We're his body. We're his body. And if these principles of God, uh, of mercy and judgment, are to be in our world today, of mercy and justice, then it's got to be through his church. Or the world's not going to see it. Camel number three. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says it's faithfulness. You should have not neglected the most important issues of the law, the more important matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, this, it, this mentions, this third camel mentions the Greek first, because this is the one place where Micah and Uh, Jesus used different terminology, but I think they're still saying the same thing. The Greek word in Matthew 23, 23 is pistis. It means faith. It means Christian faith. It means fidelity. Most often we describe it as faithfulness in in this verse, but if you look up that same word, which by the way, 227 times in the New Testament, there's only 27 books in the New Testament. So this is a camel for sure. This is a big issue in God's word. Most of the time that word is used simply as faith. What does God require of you? What are the most important issues of the law? Justice, mercy, faith. In in this instance, he says faithfulness. What is faithfulness before God? Micah 6, 8 words a little bit different. Micah 6, 8 says, uses two different words that would mean walk humbly. Look at Colossians 2, verses 5 through 7, and we'll see this Greek pistis, this word for faith. See it two times. Paul says, For though I am absent from the body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. That faith, that's that pistis, that's the same word. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith. There's the second instance of that word in that verse. As you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. 
See, a lot of times when Scripture talks about faith, especially this word pistis, it's not just about a belief. Faith is not just about what we believe. Faith is the ability to hold on and live a life that believes these things above all else. Faith is the ability to walk with Christ. Faith is relationship. That word there is talking about the relationship between man and God. The position, as Micah would put it, of humbling yourself before God. What is faith? What is walking in faith? What is Christian faith if not the position of putting one's life in submission and humility to God? Look at what 1 Peter 5, 6 says. This, this relates to this issue of humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Why? So that he may lift you up in due time. What do you think that language means? It's talking about the reward of our souls. That's talking about our redemption. Being lifted up by God is a redemption that we as followers of God desire. And Peter says, in order to receive that lifting up, Humble yourselves before God. It is our position to God that he is in control of our lives. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must deny themselves first. Before they can do anything else, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What is faith? What is walking humbly with God? It is the acknowledgement that you're living your life under the submission of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That you're not in charge of your life. Church, it is not faith to walk in a, in, in a life that thinks that you have it all together. If you are the boss of your life, if you are calling the shots of your life, I'm afraid that's not faith. Faith is walking with a proper placement in our lives toward God, with knowing that we are submitted humbly to His will. These are the camels. Here's what I find interesting, that Micah and Matthew, both passages are basically saying the same thing. Both are are confronting a group of people that have gotten it wrong because they have focused so hard on all the other things around them instead of the things that are most important. One last thing about these camels in your notes. This will be the last note in uh, the last fill in the blank. Micah, in Micah chapter 6, makes it clear that all these camels are actions. All these camels are actions. This is why the two lists don't always strike the same chord. This is why they don't always sound the same. While they're the same principles, because Micah goes one step further, and Micah uses them all alongside action verbs. Look at what he says in Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? And here's Micah's answer. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. While Jesus in Matthew says that the three 
the three issues, the three principles of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, Micah takes, takes it one step further when he's talking to unrepentant Israel when he says, here's what God requires, that you would do justly, that you would act justly, that you would love mercy, that you would walk humbly. You see, Micah makes it clear that these are not just principles that that we're supposed to agree with. Because that's the thing. Today, nobody's going to walk away from here upset because they think that 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 preacher shouldn't be talking about justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are issues that, that we would agree with. These are issues that we would say are pillars of the Christian faith. And yet, how many of us will go out and not live lives that act these out? And not live lives that are just, that are showing mercy to others, that are walking humbly with God. And why is it, church? Because we're worried about the gnats that are swarming around our faces. Because we have allowed so many other less important things to take precedence in our lives and in our hearts. And I'm afraid Jesus would look at much of the church to say, your eyes are in the wrong place. Your hearts, your hearts are far from me because your eyes are looking at the wrong things. I'm going to ask Corey. I have Corey in my notes. I'm going to ask Chad today. I have no idea. I did that, for, I did that first service. I'm sorry, Chad. Look right here. I just wrote it wrong. Ask Chad and the band to come out today. I told you, I've done a lot of stupid things this week. As we close today, I want to bring this to your attention. Here at Nineveh Christian Church, and and maybe you're visiting today. If you are, I'm I'm blessed and thrilled that you're here. But for the rest of us that that are, are used to the things in Nineveh, this is not our first Sunday here. We're not shy. You're not surprised to hear. We're not shy when it comes to the preaching that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming soon. Amen? Amen. And, and more and more, the events happening in the world around us, the events of this past week even, have got us looking to the skies, have got us as a church knowing that Jesus' return is closer than it's ever been. Amen? And when I look at these scriptures of Micah and Matthew, that's what I realize as well. In Micah chapter 6, the destruction of Jerusalem was near. The Israelite people were going to be exiled, nearly destroyed for their sins against God. The signs were everywhere around them. The prophets were were preaching every day trying to get them to understand that, that this destruction was coming near. But God's people, God's own people, Israel, didn't see it. Their eyes were somewhere else. And then in Matthew chapter 23, it's the last week of Jesus' life on earth. This happens days within Jesus coming to die as the culmination of God's redemptive plan for the world. The prophets had foretold it for centuries. Jesus himself had spoken. The signs were everywhere. And yet God's own people, the leaders, the religious leaders of God's own people didn't see it. 
because they were looking in the wrong place. And church, today, the signs are everywhere. Jesus' return is near. The signs are everywhere. And church, I'm afraid that we're not seeing it. I'm afraid that we're going to miss it. Not because we don't believe it, but because our eyes are looking at everything else. Because our eyes are focused on things that don't matter. When Jesus returns, it's not going to matter whether or not you are a Republican or Democrat. It's going to matter whether or not you gave your life to him. And we're swatting at gnats and we're missing the most important things. Church, I don't know about you, but I, I want eyes that will see. Eyes that are focused on the right things, on the most important things. Father, today, convict us. And if, if, there's, if there's an area where our eyes need to be on you, then God, point us back in the right direction. God, forgive us where we've strained at gnats and we've missed the most important things. Be with us today and convict us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The invitation is open as we stand and sing.